Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today at Steel End Car Park, the United Utilities parking facility at the southwest end of Thirlmere with author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. <laughs> good to be back again, Dave. It's good to be back on a lovely autumnal day. The silver birch leaves turning quite swiftly now, Mark. Kind of lots of yellows and golds around. The sun is gorgeous today and there's hardly a breath of wind. Mm. And it's just a quiet, calm, relaxing day. Softly spoken day, but what we're talking today about, Mark, is a, a story of political intrigue, grand ambition fierce debates that made their way both to Whitehall and stirred the soul of a nation. We're talking about Thirlmere and the flooding of the valley by Manchester Corporation. In the Victorian times they just needed water and they saw this as a soft option but it actually turned out to be not as easy as they thought but it had repercussions which were positive. Who are our guests today Mark? Well first of all we've got Reverend Geoffrey Darrell, who was vicar for the Thirlmere Valley for many a long year, who has a great love and a passion for the place. And our other guest is Ian Brodie, who has written a book about the campaign and the causes that went with the establishment of the reservoir. So we've got two very pertinent people for this setting who I'm sure will give us a good account. Fantastic. And the walk itself, Mark, what have we got planned? Well, it's an area I haven't had a great deal of opportunity to explore in the past because I normally get up onto the fell. We'll wander down through the trees on a quite a regular path from this sea lane car park and we'll go down towards the actual head of the lake and we'll go as far as Dob Gill and then cut back along the road. So it's not a long walk, but it actually gives us the sense of the place. It's a dramatic valley, to my mind, coming to it from this perspective, it feels more Scottish than it does the Lake District. It's long been a favourite walk of mine along the lakeshore, uh, any time of year, but in autumn with the trees turning, it's especially lovely. So let's go and meet up with my neighbour Jeff and with Ian. gorgeous afternoon. We've come early afternoon today for our outing. Balming sun, a little winding path that comes off the Steel End car park and uh, there's a willow like an older cub and silver birch and the crags up to my left to the west, very craggy, that's all part of Ulscarf. And right at the head of Thirlmere and across the way out of sight through the trees is Wytheburn Church. And I'm in the company of Jeff Darrell, who for quite a few years uh, was the vicar there. It's lovely to see you, Jeff. Thanks for coming and joining us. Can you tell me your association with this setting? Well, I was about 30 when I got the opportunity to come and be the vicar of this parish, along with St John's in the Vale next door. And this church here, there were not many people coming to it in those days. And uh, we did have services, and whenever I came down here, I became intrigued with the history of this valley and of the lake, which I knew, of course, was a reservoir of 
Manchester Corporation in those days. And the thing about it is, it's occurred to me since then, is that Hall's Water, the other Manchester reservoir, had only really been finished round about 1940. It was fresh in people's mind and the village of Mardale appearing out of the mud and the waves mm. when, it, when there was a drought was in people's minds. But Thirlmere, by that time, 1879 was the passing of the Thirlmere Act. Thirlmere as a reservoir was beginning to slide out of people's minds. And so it intrigued me to learn as much as I could and find out as much as I could about the lake and its history and what had happened and where the people were who should have been coming to church but weren't there to come. It's a marvellous thing that actually the church survived. Yes. And it didn't move, it was always there. Oh, yes. Apart from those few houses at Steelend... That church is the memorial, I like to think, the memorial of the people who lived here for generations, lived and died and worked here. And that church is all that remains with the gravestones of people who died and were buried there and, and so on. On the dam, where at the end of the lake, mm -hmm. there are various plaques and monuments commemorating the success of Manchester Corporation in achieving this wonderful thing, Thirlmere. There isn't a single memorial to the people who lived here, died here and worked here. That became a sort of object in my life to yeah. try and, uh, and commemorate something of, of what life used to be like in the valley. Well, thank you very much, Jeff. That's a fascinating intro to who you are and your place in this valley. Also in my company, is another significant figure who I have uh, long known and admired, who has another perspective on the Thirlmere Valley and has written a book, Thirlmere and the Emergence of the Landscape Protection Movement, and it's Ian Brodie. Lovely to see you, Ian. Hello, Mark. So can you tell us a few words about yourself? Uh, I was interested in the outdoors. My mother and father used to take me walking after I got too heavy to go between them on the tandem. <laughs> uh, and the countryside became a natural way of leisure time activities. Mm. After that time, I got very involved with ramblers on access issues. Oh, yes. uh, I got involved in various conservation issues. And in 1970s, I was appointed to the Lake Street National Park Authority uh, for my sins. One of the youngest members, I'm told, in the country at the time. Well, you look quite young now. <laughs> well, things can be deceptive, as they often are in landscapes like this. Uh, I was very fortunate in 1992, I was appointed to the role of leader of the Friends of the Lake District. And since that time, I've now managed retirement, or so I thought, <laughs> and spent a lot of time now conservation work for national trusts, some for natural England. So one never retires from cons the conservation movement. No. You're in retirement, you become sort of the old sage. <laughs> uh, you, they don't want to see you very often, but when they were short of something, then they remember you're there. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, the important thing as to why we're here today is because this valley played a very central role in the whole conservation movement. It is important and it is seminal and it is one of the reasons that the Lake District became a World Heritage Site. The birth of the conservation movement, landscape protection and to some extent nature conservation really began here at Thirlmere. Mm -hmm. Oh yes, there was the Open Space Society was active in the years before that. Common land issues, particularly around London, were major conservation matters. But things came to a head, really, when Manchester City Council, its Waterworks Committee, decided that they were going to have a reservoir at Thirlmere. 
And it was the opposition to that movement which led to a number of changes in the way people perceive landscape change, particularly dramatic landscape change. And many of the things that happened then were the benchmarks for the way all around the world today, not just in England, but all around the world, that people are concerned about the landscape, about the state of the planet. We can all trace it back, not just to the Thermier movement, but to what came before and recognise in the Lake District. We had the romantic poets, the romantic writers, romantic artists, who set the moral tone for people to be able to campaign on later. Well, that's given us a wonderful perspective from both Jeff and Ian as to why we're here and what the connections are. It's, it's a lovely afternoon. I think we ought to have a little bit of a stroll and get a sense of the place. Well, there's some lovely Scots pines here and you can look back again up to the ridge of uh, Castle Crags. Is it Castle Crags there, Jeff, looking over there to the, to the west on the bottom Raven, of Withburn Valley? Raven Crag is up there. Raven Crag, yeah. So could you set the scene as to what this was like before the reservoir? This valley is said to be a typical of the valleys left after the Ice Age, a U-shaped valley. Mm -hmm. And it's surprising when you look at old photographs the extent to which the floor of the valley was reasonably flat in places and it was patterned with little fields and cottages, houses, small farms. There were two lakes. The southern one was Wytheman Water and the northern one was Lathes Water mm -hmm. after the family who were lords of the manor of Legbethwaite and lived at Dalehead Hall. So we had these two smaller lakes and at the centre of them there was this low, rather boggy area. A ford crossed there, the Wath, mm -hmm. and over time people, presumably to make life more convenient for pedestrians, had built a series of pillars and linked with wooden walkways, which, uh, when it was really wet and the water rose, then these things probably just floated away and they could be re rebuilt afterwards. So you've got to picture these two small lakes, and round them you've got scattered farmsteads. And especially at the southern end, quite an extensive area of flat agricultural land. And this was how it had been, I suppose, for generations, really. People came here as early as the Bronze Age. We had a couple of bracelets which were found at the foot of Rough Crag, oh. which is behind us. A Bronze Age bracelet, so we know that people... As long ago as that, two to three thousand years, well, 3, before, before years. Christ, yeah. um, were... Uh, living here. The next most significant thing, as far as I'm concerned, I think is the arrival of the, of the Vikings. Mm. And pretty well all of the little farms in the valley have names which can be derived from the original Norse, Old Norse words. One in particular always intrigues me. One of the most important little group of cottages was called the city. Oh yes. And uh, people always puzzled why there should be a city in this remote little valley. Some people were quite scathing about it. Harriet Martineau talked about the boastful people at Wiseman, <laughs> calling it a city. 
But Robert Gambles, who's a friend of, of, of some of us and very knowledgeable on the derivation of words, he says it may be derived from a word S-E-T-R, set, which means a dwelling or a little settlement of some sort. And that makes sense because when you pronounce the word and then you say city, you can see how very easily over the years this could happen. So in terms of the wider settlement, there were two basic nuclei communities, were they, or, or so? There was a group of houses at the southern end, and there was a group at the area called Armboth, which was one side of this narrow passageway between the two sides of the lake. And on one side was Armboth House, which was in the hands of the Jackson family, who were said to have been silk merchants, and this is where their money came from, I imagine. On the east side was Dalehead Hall, which I think from about the middle of the 16th century had been in the hands of a family called Lades. There was also a manor of Wytheburn, but there never seems to have been a manor house in this area. And so uh, I think the Jacksons on one side and the Lades on the other side were the two prominent families. And then at the, the southern end, we've got the little group of houses like City and Stenock and Stenkin and Steel End uh, gathered around the southern part of the lake. And the church is in its position. Is there a sort of a sense of why it was there specifically? Uh, well, I, I suppose that was as near to where most people lived, in a way. Uh, and it had always been there since, well, I think 1550-ish. And then next to the church, in later years, uh, a schoolhouse was built. And opposite, the famous inn called the Horse's Head or the Nag's Head. It became the Nag's Head later on. So how many... Sp- people would you say lived in this valley at that sort of uh, given time? I would have guessed about 250, something like that. And what sort of jobs would they do? Well, there was a blacksmith, there was a tailor, Mm -hmm. clog maker or shoemaker, there was a baker and there was the curate of course and uh, those are the sort of obvious jobs that were useful to everybody Mm. and the people were very closely linked to one another so that if one house became empty quite soon people from one of the other houses or relatives would move in and you see this happening time and time again it was a very close-knit sort of community with interrelationships I think Talk about the connection with the past I think there's somebody who's died not too long ago who yes. genuinely had a, a deep looted connection with this family. Who was, yes, who was this? Did. Her name was Martha Hart, and she was born in a house called Wyfold, spelt Q-U-A-Y fold, T-fold or Quifold, but yes. pronounced Wyfold. She was born there, and uh, she died a year or two ago now, the 105. Wow. And she'd uh, moved about the country quite a bit, but she came back here, and her ashes are now buried in the churchyard here. There's an amazing connection, really, over all that time, because she went to school here, and she remembered wartime experiences here. And uh, when she came back here to live, she took part for a time in the life of the community, baking and putting things into the flower show and doing this sort of thing. And then finally uh, it became too much and she had to go back south to where her son lived. Sad loss when she moved, because places need connections and continuity wherever. They do, but, yes. In a sort of a way, you're another version of that like, continuity. <laughs> I suppose so. I've been here long enough now, I suppose, to accept it. But you know what they say? They say you're not a Cumbrian until you're dead. So I don't know. <laughs>
and you've written a book about the valley, haven't you? I have indeed, yes. What's it called? A couple of them, actually. Oh, I've right. One about ten years ago called Wytheman Church and the Valley of Thelmere. Yes. And more recently, the Valley of Thelmere, History of the Houses and People and, in and the Old Valley. That's been a special treat for me, Jeff, to have your company. Uh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure, and thank you for asking me. The changing of the garb, we're now moving on a little bit further, but this time in the company of Ian Brodie. And uh, the sun is still beaming down on us. It's a gorgeous afternoon, and uh, I'm really looking forward to having a nice stroll towards the lake. Get our first view of the lake now with Helvellyn Screes sunlit above the conifers and Mines Gill coming steeply down. And we're looking at the back, the western slopes of Helvellyn from here, with Coombe Crags. But we're in the valley bottom, which is very flat, and close by we've got the shingle shore of Withburn itself, which is the confluent stream at the head of the lake. Coming in uh, on the other side is Ray's Beck, which has come down from Dunmale Ray's, but that's just across the marshy area in front of us. Well, we've got a feel from Jeff as to what the valley was like in its quiet agricultural days. So what were the circumstances that turned Manchester to turn their gaze on this setting here? Well, Manchester was a developing city in the late uh, 19th century. Uh, particularly around the 1860s, the cotton mills were doing superbly well on the back of things like the British East India Company and bodies like that. Uh, there was tremendous growth of population and obviously outbreaks of disease. But Manchester began to fear that the chain of reservoirs they built in the Peak District without opposition was no longer fit for purpose in terms of the amount it could supply for future needs. Mm -hmm. But why did they come here? Well, they were looking around Allswater and other places and they decided that there would be a lot of opposition at Allswater from the villa owners. They decided that Thromere and Allswater were two possible solutions and they could get water from here, pipeline through Dunmill Rays and then gravity feed it all the way down to Manchester. And if they came to the Lake District, there were burgeoning towns en route, Preston, Blackburn, Bolton, Wigan. And if they built an aqueduct, they could sell water and make a profit out of it it's these other win, towns. Win, isn't it, sir? So Manchester were very Office. canny, really hard-nosed Victorian businessmen were running the Waterworks Committee yes. for Manchester. Alderman John Grave, who was the chairman of the Waterworks Committee for Manchester, was born at Portinscale and he knew the area. And so they tried with their ponies to sneak over the back of Helvellyn one late afternoon mm -hmm. when the weather conditions were rather poor. John Grave and his other alderman colleague, John Harwood, almost died from exposure and exhaustion. So they tried to sneak in the valley to have a look at the valley without people here becoming aware of their intentions. So, what did Manchester Corporation have to do to get this whole project underway? Well, the City Council, led by the Waterworks Committee, had to lodge a bill with the House of Lords and House of Commons to get parliamentary approval, A, to construct the reservoir, but B, to spend the money. And this is another interesting part of the story, because before the Council had government approval to spend the money, Alderman Grave and Alderman Harwood came to Thirlmere with money from Manchester City Council, which they did not have the authority to spend. 
and we're buying land here at well above the market rates. In fact, in the Waterworks Committee minutes, at least twice, if not three times, the two aldermen were admonished by the committee for spending money without permission, and they had to stop forthwith, of which, of course, they didn't. So literally, they went door to door almost, round the farmers, round anybody who owned land, and said, will you sell this land to me? Well, most of the land would be in major land ownerships, mm-hmm. and there were one or two major landowners who were a little bit or very reluctant to sell to Manchester at the time. Uh, But higher the market prices, of course, sweetened the pill for some of these landowners. Mm. So, yes, they were literally knocking on doors and saying, we want to buy your land. And and they bought it piecemeal, as it were? It it was bought bit by bit over, over a period of years, yes. Risking council taxpayers' money in Manchester on the chance that Parliament would give them permission to go ahead with the reservoir. Fascinating to come round. You find these what might call ghost walls that drift towards the reservoir. They speak loudly of an agricultural community that was so long ago. We've got silver birch, we've got bilberry, and uh, I've noticed some bog myrtle back there. Ice smooth bedrock just below my feet here. It's so wild. It's like a highland glen. It's a loch. The colours are magical at this time of year, with the sun running through the bracken, which is now brown, and the craggy escarpment in front of us, which is all part of Bell Crags, which leads up onto the great wild central ridge, uh, which runs from Old Scar through to Bleabury Fell and Waller Crag. So, Ian, you've talked about Manchester Corporation's plans and uh, the purchase of land and so forth, but in the background, already, there is opposition brewing. Well, it, it was remarkable that a lot of people came together under a heading called the Thermia Defence Association. Mm-hmm. And these were really two schools of people who had different agendas. And that division probably cost them part of the loss of the, the bill being passed by Parliament, if you will. Uh, there were those people, particularly over the Rays in Grasmere, another John Harwood, by the way, who was a solicitor in the Midlands, but had a house of the Hollins, where National Trust is now in in Grasmere, uh, who felt that if they were putting an aqueduct through there, their particular property rights had to be safeguarded. So they raised opposition. But there were people who schooled in the sort of thoughts of the romantic writers and poets and the artists who thought that damage to the landscape was unacceptable. And these people came together in the Thermo Defence Association and... One of them in particular, a chap called Somerville, whose father ran a shoemaking business in Kendall, which became K-Shoes in, in the history. He was the youngest member of the family. He was a friend of Ruskin's. And Ruskin was very helpful to, to Somerville. And Somerville wrote a pamphlet campaigning against Manchester's plans. And this raised tremendous opposition nationally. Mm. And in fact, Ruskin said to Somerville, Here's a list of names of people I got together to oppose the railway extension from Ambleside, from Windermere to Ambleside. 
And that was the first time probably in history that a mailing list had been used to get a campaign going. Isn't that fascinating? And things started to take place locally, outside the sphere of Parliament. So what was going on? Well, it was actually nationally and probably internationally because the national press got hold of this story and there was tremendous debates in the press. And if you were a Manchester-based paper, you'd take Manchester City side. And if you were a national-based paper, and even the Yorkshire-based papers, took the side of the Filmy Defence Association, by and large. Mm. And it was a tremendous slanging match. The Bishop of Manchester was against the opponents of the bill. The Bishop of Carlisle was against the Bishop of Manchester. <laughs> and, and this, on, on, if I can use this phrase, this ungodly battle <laughs> was going on in the press. And even some of the early leaders were suggesting in the mid-1870s that the Lake District should become a national park. Wow. And this was the way the press was thinking in support of the Thurmey Defence Association. And Robert Somerville, who, who wrote the pamphlet for the TDA, he went down to London to speak to people down there as well, so the public meetings held, lobbying meetings with individual people. And while he was there, he was based with Octavia Hill, wow. a name that comes back into the story later on. And even Octavia Hill raised her strong protest. So the people who protested against the, the bill in, on a national scene were people of repute. And even the little local man from down the road give us two and sixpence to the course to try and protect this wonderful, natural-looking Lake District landscape of Thromir. So we have all this campaigning happening locally and nationally, but in the end, it's not enough. No, unfortunately, the Parliament took Manchester's arguments and passed the Act in 1879, and that set up the mechanism by which Manchester eventually went ahead to build the dam and construct the reservoir and the associated waterworks with that. All those who put all that effort and emotion into campaigning, they must have felt deflated. Oh, absolutely. They, they felt they'd really lost a, a campaign that they should have won. Uh, and there was a tremendous amount of regret. But before that, one of the things that Parliament did in considering the bill was to allow general public, who had no legal interest in the land, to oppose the bill. Now, apart from a small bit of legislation on Chelsea Water a couple of years before, this was the first time that Parliament has ceded the principle that you and I can raise objections to proposals that are taking place on land which we have no legal interest. That's intriguing, isn't it? 1886, the actual civil engineering begins, the first tunnel is dug, and the navvies come here and start work. And we're not talking about just here. It's also on the aqueduct all the way down to Manchester. What's the sequence of events? Well, they, they began work on the aqueduct, first of all, which was partly pipeline and partly cut and fill. Uh, in fact, though today we could complain about water leakage from pipes, parts of the Cromio aqueduct, in those days, water ingressed from the ground. Oh. So it used to gain water on parts <laughs> of the way down. Clever! Uh, but about 1890 we had the, the opening ceremony. Crikey, and that me. is commemorated with a big plaque on the dam. And they had a big opening ceremony, all the nobility were there, and a bunch of city council members were there in their finery. Rones, they did the prayers there. Canon Rones, they're from, from Crossway at Keswick. And they had a big bean feast. And then 24 hours later, 
water arrived in Manchester and they had a second bean feast. <laughs> Well, we've completed our, in effect, lake shore walk through the woods with the Scots pine, very handsome, big spinny of Scots pine here, approaching Dob Gill, which is a great spout of water coming under a bridge from the lakeside road on the west shore of the lake. And we came past one or two yew trees and the moss-covered walls that are the clue to a, a farmstead and uh, just above me is the Binker Stone which I think is a lovely name because it actually just means doorstep and it's just a, a, a natural piece of bedrock obviously very resilient to the actions of the glacier but it's a monstrous stone it really is an impressive sight so if I, I recommend listeners if you come and do this walk look out for the Binker Stone Returning to our story where we mentioned that uh, the defence of Thermia failed and there's a sense of deflation and loss, but there were gains over a course of time. The campaign against Manchester for the, during the time of the bill in Parliament wasn't without its silver lining. Uh, the press at the time raised the issue of having national parks in, in, in Britain and the campaign for national parks, which was successful with the 1949 Act, really began at the time of the Thirlmere Bill before Parliament. Yeah. But other things came out from this time because three of the people who were not quite directly concerned with the, the bill, Robert Hunter, Octavia Hill and Canon Ronsley, came together to realise that if we had other conservation issues in the landscape of places like the Lake District, quite. Unless you own the land, you are going to be very difficult mm. in resisting change taking place, undesirable change taking place. Mantis change always takes place in conservation. But proposals for railways round to Buttermere, for example. Mm, uh, and Rawlsley later on came into the picture at Thirlmere when two things happened. One that's crucial is that Manchester were felling some of the oak trees and he could not persuade them to stop felling those oak trees. So he realised, with Robert Hunter and with Octavia Hill, the only way forward was for an organisation, a charitable organisation, to be set up that would buy land and hold it in perpetuity for the nation. Hence the National Trust was born. So it's national is the key word? We think today the National Trust is influencing the ownership of about a quarter or just under a quarter of the Lake Street National Park. Mm. And if they didn't, we might have had some horrendous developments on some of those sites. Mm. So the work of Octavia Hill, Robert Hunter and Canon Rawlsley was, was fundamental at that time to mm. the understanding of how we can best protect our landscapes for future generations. Mm. There's something sort of lurking in the back of my mind. You mentioned earlier on about Councillor John Grave, but... I think he's not mentioned on the plaque on the dam. No, John Grave's name is curiously missing from the plaque of the Waterworks Committee who were present at the opening of the dam in 1890. John Grave, as chairman of the Waterworks Committee, 
assumed the title of Lord of the Manor. And of course the Lord of the Manor was able to inflict fines on the common graziers should they infringe the rules of management of common. And it is said <laughs> that John Grave pocketed the money personally. Ah. And somehow the trail to John Grave goes quiet after that moment and he is no longer heard of in public life in Manchester. A grave omission. What happened to the Thermia Defence Association? It split very badly after the, the Act was passed, partly because the landowners had got their way and they protected their property with a suitable undergrounding of the aqueduct and protection of their pleasure grounds, as it were, whilst the conservation wing of the movement was sadly uh, on, on the down. Uh, the formation of the Lake District Defence Society later on and the Lake District Association by Canon Ronsley was a, a feeling that he had that there was a need to a local pressure group to fight the campaigns on land the National Trust couldn't afford to buy. Right. So he set up these two organisations and in 1934 the successor to those organisations was set up at a meeting at Fitz Park in Keswick when the Friends of the Lake District were born. Everything has a starting point. It's wonderful to see the sequence of them. Well, the Friendly in its early years was very much a nationally based organisation and a lot of its influential members were also influential in the Council for Protection of Rural England, in the National Trust, in the Ramblers Association when that was eventually set up. And it was the Friends of Lake Street through that kind of networking with other organisations through these common personalities were able to raise the level of the debate of campaign for national parks to be set up in Britain. And in England and Wales, that happened, as we know, in 1949, as a sort of a, a peace dividend from the, the two world wars. That conservation cause has been taken up here by others subsequently. And I think Susan Johnson is a significant figure from the Friends. Susan Johnson acted as an individual, but she was a very influential member of the Friends of the Lake Street. In fact, her father, Reverend H. H. Simmons, was one of the founding members and one of the first officials of the society. Uh, Susan, well, what the papers called a David and Goliath battle, on her own, well armed with her research, took Manchester City Council to Magistrates Court in Keswick to interpret part of the act that set up Thromir Reservoir the Act was very particular about having indigenous trees planted around Thromir, although it does put the stress on the margins of the lake. So Susan took Manchester City Council to Magistrates Court in Keswick in 1985, and there was Susan sat on her own, one or two people at the press gallery, Manchester with its array of lawyers, fighting Susan, saying, no, no, the margins of the lake are as we have them now, that's perfectly okay in accordance with the Act. Uh, and Susan won the case. Brilliant. Absolutely knocked back. But eventually, and thanks again to the work of the Friends of Lake Street after Susan's time, we're badgering United Utilities, the successor of Northwest Water Authority, the successor of Manchester City Council, to comply with the court ruling. And now it's almost there, but trouble is regrowth of beach and Sitka Spruce takes place again. So there is a need to keep on top of that job. But it's notable that a few years ago, Manchester had to budget half a million pounds to carry out the majority of the outstanding work. It's a semi-natural setting today, but in an age of water insecurity, 
What do places like Thermia actually mean? What's going to happen to our water supplies in the future? United Utilities still has tremendous loss of water from pipes. And until it renews a lot of its piping system, we're going to have more demand for water resources developments elsewhere. And if we keep the population growth and water consumption growth per head growing, then we are going to be really in a very difficult position in a few years' time because sites for future reservoirs are going to be in high amenity areas. Yes, you can get some out of the aquifers underground, but that has only got limited supplies. Mm. And some of those are going to be tainted with nitrates and other fertilisers and pesticides from farmland. Mm. So we're going to have a real quandaries in future. But as Lord Inglewood, a great friend of Cumbria, once said, Thermia Dam, like all dams, has a finite life. What happens then? <laughs> Quite. <laughs> I'll be damned to have a finite life. Let's just for a flight of thought moment, if you were transported back here to the early 1800s, before there was any notion of reservoirs, which is an agricultural community, what would you actually want to do here? I think I would go back to Jeff Darrell and say, what a wonderful community it was. What a wonderful, a living, working landscape. And I would try and absorb how that sustainable symbiosis between people and the landscape and a working landscape and what we could learn from that to take forward today. So Ian, we've got to that magical moment. Quick fire questions. What would you be your perfect Lakeland day? Any day. Having a little wander, seeing some wildlife, enjoying the landscape. Wherever I am on that day, that's perfect. What was your first Lake District memory? First Lake District memory was probably coming with my family up to Coniston and making that first ascent of Coniston Old Man. And years later, our school had a little old quarryman's hut on the Old Man and we had some wonderful cold, wet times up there at school parties and after school, still exploring those wonderful, intricate fells of the, of the Coniston Massif. It's a fascinating area, isn't it? You can never tire of wandering up Boulder Valley or whatever. Uh, have you a favourite Lakeland fell? No, I don't. Have you a favourite Lakeland lake? No. Uh, so asking you what's your favourite town or village, is there one? No. Nope. No, no, nope. I, you've got to love the whole of the Lake District it's equally. A, you've a, got to love the whole of Cumbria, whether it's from Spatria to Schofield Pike. It's all got some fantastic cultural history, some natural history, some wonderful people, some wonderful charm and some wonderful beauty. So all of it is equally regarded. Have you a favourite Cumbrian author or book? Yes, I have. Yes? I have more than a soft spot for the work of Norman Nicholson. Norman I knew back in the uh, late 70s, early 80s before he died and I know Norman's landscapes of Millam and Haverig and that area very well. I know the Lidden Valley where I was yesterday very well. Uh, his books on the Lake District, his topographical books and some of his poetry better encapsulates the Lake District than any other writer. Isn't it wonderful? If you were Prime Minister for a day, what one thing would you do to sustain the landscape and maybe the culture of Lake District? 
I would put immediate controls on the amount of tourism development that could take place. And they gave Cumbria County Council the ease to close some of our mountain passes to, through motorist. Make a difference, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Uh, when the final day comes and somebody gather to scatter your ashes, where might that be? That would be an easy choice because the people available to scatter them would probably be as old as me. <laughs> Therefore, they couldn't take them up the fell. <laughs> the mother and fathers are both on one Lake District fell. But I would put them on the Dudden Sands because the estuary is the place where Lakeland fells come towards a stage in their life where they're renewed. And it's this thought that the water comes off the fells, brings the sands and the silts and the rocks. And then eventually, in time, those rocks will become fells again. Yes. Part of the eternal process. And you're part of that eternal process yourself. And to everybody who loves Lakeland, I give you a great thank you and applause. And thank you for giving your time today, Ian. It's been a great pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Journeys in back at Steel End Car Park after our gentle ramble along these shores of Thirlmere. And it's not been a long walk, has it, Mark? But full of intrigue and full of passion. And you can see how deep the cultural roots here and those worldwide repercussions. Extraordinary. Oh, they are extraordinary. And um, we had the perfect commentators to actually put it all into perspective. Uh, I love uh, Jeff's warmth for this place and Ian instinctively both loves the Lake District in the round but he sees the importance of this place as central to the whole notion of fighting for landscapes, for the notion of national parks and how as uh, individuals we can all play a part and he's uh, certainly done so in, in his life. Yeah I mean there were a few things that came out of it for me first and foremost it's so easy isn't it to just drive past Thalmere on the A591 and I know you said at the start you tend to have your eyes on the high fells and, and quite rightly so sometimes but it's a lovely walk that you hadn't done before. No it's, it's, I love new ground the Lake District always has something up its sleeve or up its tails and uh, this is an absolute gem for me I'm coming back here again this western shoreline path along uh, film it is very special. It's really lovely and one of the points that we were chatting about is rather uniquely because it's been stockproofed for many many years now the amount of natural regenerative growth here is probably greater than in almost any other well certainly around any other lake in the Lake District so you get a very different lakeside walk than you do around say Derwent Water for all its loveliness. It's far more feral Mm. That's the lovely feel about it. It's scrubby and wild, isn't it? Mm. And, and still very accessible. Yes, and two other things that just really stood out for me from today's conversation was the start of that mailing list campaigning tool, which of course nowadays, you know, you, every day you get a couple of emails, don't you, saying please sign up to this signature list. <laughs> we could potentially trace it all the way back to this battle for Thirlmere. 
and the other thing that I found extraordinary, which I certainly didn't know, was that the planning regulations that we know today, where you and I can object to, you know, somebody wants to build an extension, they also have their roots in this valley, in that time, the ripples and waves that follow on from what happened here in this slightly unloved backwater now, they have repercussions for all of us every day. Anyway, so moving on, we've had some correspondence. This is off the back of our last podcast with James Rebanks. We have Steve. Steve says, it was wonderful listening to James Rebanks. Very inspirational. I'm looking to buy his book on the back of the podcast. If more people were like him, there would be fewer problems in the world. And I agree with him. The views to Patterdale from up there lift your spirits. That's Steve. Next up, Tim Clark from Patterdale. Hello, Tim. What a brilliant podcast with James. He gave a masterclass. Isn't it exciting that the community in Matterdale is pioneering world-class agricultural practices with James, Amy and Danny leading the way? James for Prime Minister, or at least Minister for Agriculture. Uh, got a couple from you here, Mark. Oh, yes, Kerry Davis, the editor of The Great Outdoors. He was saying to me... Um, James has been saying and writing some very interesting stuff over the last few years, certainly helped to shift his way of viewing rewilding and the attendant challenges around it. So somebody in the media, uh, in the outdoor media, who see a farmer putting perspectives on things that are actually influencing change in their thinking. And then a farmer, Eric Horn, who was in our third episode, who's a long established what they now call regenerative farmer, but he's a dairy farmer in North Cumbria. He said he very much enjoyed listening to James and praised him for his articulation of the cause for soil health. Um, you know, the answer really does lie in the soil and looking after the pastures the way James does. So there was a farmer taking a message from that podcast. Eric Horn there from way up in the north of the county. Yeah, on Hadrian's Wall. So lots of love for James Rebanks there. This is podcast episode... 39? 39. For 38 previous episodes, you can go to www.countrystride.co.uk. If you'd like to add your own feedback, please do get in contact. You can contact us via the website or on social. We're on social, Mark. At Countrystride1. At Countrystride1, Facebook and Twitter. We've got some fabulous episodes coming up in the next couple of weeks. What have we got, Mark? Uh, draft horses in the woodlands. Uh, so that's uh, Bill and Alison Lloyd. Um, and then we've got Dr. Kerry Andrews talking about Harriet Martineau. So there's two absolute gems. Fingers crossed we won't be locked back in our homes again so we can get out to have those chats. But for now, from Thelmere, this valley so often overlooked but alive with history... Uh, and with a lot of pride, we're saying goodbye for now. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>